Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find it written back in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, the 110th Psalm, beginning at the first verse. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus, you who are here in God's house and you also of our radio audience. It is good to have you in God's house this morning. It is fine, radio friends, to have you worshiping with us also. I assume that all of you have fought and have won the battle of the change of time and you are here in God's house today. If you glanced at your calendar for this week, you noticed that this coming Thursday, May the 4th, is marked on your church calendar as Ascension Day. It is the 40th day after Easter. You may say to yourself, what does it mean, Ascension Day? Well, Jesus arose on Easter, as we know, and in this 40-day period, from Easter to Ascension, he showed himself alive to his followers, convincing them beyond the shadow of a doubt that he who died was alive again. And they went out and they gave their lives for him because they knew that he was alive. On Easter Sunday, you recall, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. She saw him alive, then the other women. And in the afternoon, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus saw him and spoke with him. There was a private appearance to Peter that afternoon. That night, Jesus appeared, Easter Sunday night, to the disciples when Thomas was not present. The following Sunday night, you remember, he appeared when Thomas was present, that Thomas got to see him. Then the disciples went up into Galilee, and there they had fished one night, and early one morning, Christ was on the shore. Seven of them were fishing, and they came to the shore, as you recall, ate breakfast with the living Christ when Peter was reinstated into the apostolate. Then there was another great appearance of Jesus on a mountaintop in Galilee, and he had told them about that prior to his death that they were to meet him there. Paul mentions that about 500 gathered together at one place. Evidently, this was it, when about 500 followers plus the apostles saw the living Christ when he gave the great missionary command to go out and make disciples of all nations. And then there was a private appearance to his brother James, of which we know nothing except the fact and then on the 40th day after Easter, on Ascension Day, Jesus made his last appearance to the eleven. They walked up the slope of the Mount of Olives, past the Garden of Gethsemane, and when they came to the top of the Mount of Olives, and Bethany was there right in the brief distance, Jesus raised his hands and began to bless them. And as he did, something happened. He started to go up. And the eleven stood there and they looked up and they gazed into heaven watching him as he was going up. 
and a cloud finally received him out of their sight. And when that happened, there were two men standing by them in white apparel, two angels that said, Ye men of Galilee, why are you standing gazing into heaven? That same Jesus that you have seen go into heaven is going to come in the same way someday. He's going to return. And we may say to ourselves, well, what did it mean? He went back to heaven. The text that I read in the Old Testament, by inspiration of God, David wrote it. And he said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. David, who lived a thousand years before Christ, understood the ascension. These words of the 110th Psalm applied to Jesus because Jesus, in his earthly ministry, applied them to himself. David said a thousand years before ascension, The Lord said unto my Lord, in other words, my God said unto my Lord, the Messiah, my Son, that would come from me, God the Father said to God the Son, Sit thou at my right hand. David saw it in prophecy. Therefore, on the ascension day, what a tremendous thing that must have been. Jesus had finished his work on earth. He goes to heaven, and there 10,000 times 10,000 angels, 100 million angels, and the saints of God, they greeted him. And God the Father said, Son, sit at my right hand. God the Father never became a human being. He has no right hand. Therefore, this is a, an expression that means the place of honor. In other words, God the Father said to Jesus on Ascension Day, Son, sit at my right hand. Sit at the highest place of honor in heaven. Occupy the greatest, highest place of glory, the grand place of distinction. Sit there, my son. This is reserved for you. What a tremendous homecoming. And you and I may say, what does it all mean? That he sits in the highest place of honor in heaven. Why, it ought to be a source of comfort. It ought to be a source of courage. It ought to be a source of joy for you and me. It ought to be a real spiritual shot in the arm if there ever is anything that should give it to us. We say ascension, a spiritual shot in the arm. Jesus seated at the right hand of God, seated in the highest place of honor. But we may say to ourselves, but... Oh, it's hard to feel that it's a spiritual shot for me, that it's a source of courage for me in this world. I feel that it's sort of a forsakenness, that when he went to heaven that he left me behind, and that he's forsaken me. I feel sort of abandoned in this world of sin since he returned to heaven and he is seated in the highest place of honor. But Christian friends, ascension ought to be a spiritual shot in the arm for you and me. The fact that our Christ sits at the right hand of God because it wasn't an abandonment. It wasn't a leaving you and me behind. It wasn't a brush off. He is seated in that highest place of honor and his greatest concern is you and me. Do you realize that seated in that place of glory, that Christ's greatest concern is you, that he has the greatest concern for you as though you were the only one living on the face of the earth. But he has an equal concern for me and for all of his children as though we were the only ones that he had to be concerned about. That's the spiritual shot in the arm because seated at the right hand of majesty, he has you and me in his heart. Oh, what a thrilling thing it ought to be to know that our 
Christ has as his chief concern, his chief interest, his chief care, you and me. We may say to ourselves, does he? Why, in the first place, let's know this. Christ, the God-man, he's seated at the right hand of God as our king. David saw it in prophecy, and he said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Christ came into the world, didn't he, to be a king. And it was to be a kingdom far different than any kingdom the world had ever known previously. Recall, he said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't think of my kingdom as a worldly kingdom, Pilate. He said, else would my soldiers fight. At one other time, he says, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. You can't say there it is or here it is. He says, the kingdom of God is within you. And you and I say, well, if he came to be the king of a kingdom, what kind of a kingdom is it? Every Sunday in church, when we say the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. That's the king. In other words, we say, I believe that there exists in this world, even though I can't see it with my naked eye, the kingdom of God, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. What is this kingdom? This kingdom is the kingdom that exists right now here on earth that is made up of every true believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It makes no difference what your denominational handle may be, whether you are a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic or a Methodist or a Baptist or an Episcopalian. If you have come to a living faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you are a member of the kingdom of the saved. That's the kingdom, tremendous, wonderful, that your king and mine came to establish. And when the kingdom was established, the kingdom of the saved, the kingdom of those who have come to faith in him, he went to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and he still serves as king. In the power that is his, he watches that there is no power on earth or under the earth, no power of Satan, no power of the fallen angels that can ever be so great that it can destroy that kingdom. That kingdom is an invincible and eternal kingdom. And therefore, as he sits as our king, when you and I pray to him, he, the God-man, guarantees you and me that will never be kidnapped from that kingdom. Today is also Rogation Sunday or Rogate Prayer Sunday. And as you and I pray to him who is seated in the throne of majesty on high, there comes this guarantee because he is king. No power shall ever kidnap you and me from the kingdom of God. Even though you and I are unconscious, even though you and I in the weakness of body may not be able to collect our thoughts, Satan shall never never be able to have the power to snatch you and me from Jesus Christ to kidnap us against our will. There will never come a time when the powers of hell can ever rescue in me from Jesus Christ. He sits and rules in the midst of his enemies. And as the Oriental potentate, when he would conquer a king, would have that king get down and put his foot on his neck or his head. Jesus, as king, he rules in the midst of his enemies, 
And as David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until thou make thine enemies thy footstool. The enemies of the kingdom of God are the footstool of Jesus Christ, given evidence from the fact that the kingdom of God still stands and it will remain forever and ever. You and I may say to ourselves, what about those in Vietnam? Will they ever torture my son? And can he be kidnapped from the kingdom of God? Can again adversity and trouble come that will be so great that they can pluck my child, my son, my husband, my daughter from the kingdom of God? No, that will never happen. Oh, if you and I could only live in the spirit of the ascension, to know that it isn't abandonment, it isn't this that he left us to ourselves. He is seated at the right hand of God. What a spiritual treat and what a spiritual shot in the arm it ought to be. You are his chief concern as though you were the only one alive on earth and so am I. Each individual in his kingdom is his chief concern and if we lived in the light of the ascension, then we would pray with boldness and with confidence and with enthusiasm, and we would put tomorrow into his hands. We may shiver and be afraid of tomorrow and wonder what is coming, but Paul knew this, that because Christ rules as king, he was able to say, for I reckon and I know this, and I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And you and I can say it too. Nothing will snatch you and me from the kingdom of God because seated at the right hand of God is again our Christ as King, the God-man, you know, when he went to heaven on Good Friday afternoon in death, his body stayed here. But when he went to heaven on the ascension, he took his body with him. And I love to think of him as a man on the throne as well as God. He says, I know it's tough down there. I spent 33 years on earth. I know what adversity means. I sat where you sat. I know what troubles mean. And I know what powers militate against you. And because he's a man, he understands. You and I have a man on the throne, seated in the grandest and the most glorious place in heaven. And you and I are the apple of his eye. He is seated there, and he has you and me in his heart. Oh, to live in the light of the ascension. Jesus Christ, again, seated at the right hand of God, said David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Oh, the place of honor, the place of distinction, the highest place of glory in heaven. And again, seated there, you and I ought to find a tremendous spiritual shot in the arm because you are his greatest concern, and so am I. Oh, that's true, because Christ the God-man is seated at the right hand of God also as our priest. He came into the world not only to be a king, but he came to be a priest too. You and I may say he came as a high priest. He was a different kind of a priest. He was not from the family of Aaron. Aaron's family gave the high priest, but Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was a Levite, and the Levite furnished the priest. Christ was from the tribe of Judah, and Judah had no priest. The priest didn't come from the tribe of Judah. 
he was to be different. But he came into the world and he was a different priest. Aaron and all the Old Testament high priests, they offered for the sins of the world the blood of goats and the blood of lambs. They offered animals. But one great priest came into the world, our high priest, and he offered not the blood of goats and of lambs, but his own blood. John the Baptist, you recall, looked at him and pointed one day, Behold the Lamb of God. Christ, the Lamb of God, our high priest, became the sacrifice, and he, as the Lamb of God at Calvary, did something tremendous for you and me on earth. It was by that sufferings and death that he met the justice of his heavenly Father. He took on himself our guilt and our punishment, and he bore the equal of an eternity in hell for you and me. He bore an exemption ticket from hell for you and for me. Do you know of any greater concern than one that would do that? And he scored and earned an admission ticket to heaven for you and me and for all men. He is the Lamb of God who bore it in his own flesh upon the cross. That's what he did. And now that he is in heaven, we are assured that he sits in the highest place of honor as our high priest. And David said, God has said, I have sworn and I will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we say, what did David mean by that? A thousand years before David lived, about two thousand years before Christ, Abraham lived. And you remember when Abraham left the land of Ur of the Chaldees and he came over to the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan, people had forgotten anything about the true God. It was heathenism at its worst. But when he got into the land of Canaan, one day in the ancient city of Jerusalem, the city of Salem, he met a man uh, by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a priest and king of the Most High God. How Melchizedek ever knew about God and became a priest and king of the living God, nobody knows. There is no genealogy given as regards Melchizedek. We're not told where he was born or when. We are not told about his death. And Melchizedek becomes a symbol of an eternal priesthood. And therefore, again, just as he is a symbol of an endless priesthood, your Christ and mine, seated at the right hand of God, is an eternal priest like Melchizedek, which in simple language means this. His sacrifice will never run out. The time will never come that God will say, I'm sorry, I've got to throw everybody out of heaven because the sacrifice of my son ran out with its efficacy. The time will never come that God will say, no more sinners can come into the kingdom and come to life eternal because the efficacy of the Lamb of God and his suffering has run out. He is a priest forever. Talk about a shot in the arm, and that means that when you and I pray to this God-man as our high priest, he gladly and willingly and enthusiastically forgives you and me our sins every day. Oh, to go to this king and to this high priest who sits on the throne and to go to him every day and confess our sins of ignorance. He says, I, oh, thank you for coming. I'm glad to forgive you. When you and I go to him every day in prayer and say, my sins of weakness, these are the things I didn't want to do, but I did them anyhow. They are gladly forgiven. And he says, thank you for coming. I'm so glad to forgive you and take your guilt and your punishment away. It is all a privilege. He tells you, and me, I'd rather forgive you than eat. 
And if we come to him with our sin again of willfulness, where we have gone against him and we know better and we are out of grace and we go and ask you for forgiveness. He thanks us for coming and say, thank you. I am glad to forgive you and to reinstate you. And if you and I have wandered away from him for a long time, if we have persisted in deliberate sin, if we have left him and dethroned him, then we come back we may say, what kind of a reception do we get? Why this king that sits at the right hand of God is also our priest. And he says, I've been praying for you that you'd come back. I've been asking the Father to keep giving you life and not to take your life. And thank God you're back and gladly and willingly I forgive you and I reinstate you. That's what ascension means. And if you and I would say today I'm going to live in the light of the ascension. I'm going to live in the light that the God-man, there's a man on the throne. And he is seated in the place of highest honor and distinction in heaven and he has me in his heart. I am his greatest concern. And so is everyone else. His greatest concern. If we lived in the light of the ascension, then we would pray with boldness and confidence and with enthusiasm. And we would go to him again if we're ashamed of yesterday. How many of us simply look back at yesterday again at some sin? And we say to ourselves, I've gone to the throne of grace hundreds of times and I've asked for forgiveness. And then adversity comes. And then we plague ourselves in addition by saying, I'm being punished. I know I'm being punished for something that I've done. Not only do you have the sickness or the adversity, but that horrible guilty conscience where we condemn ourselves and we say, I'm being punished. But when we turn to this great one at the throne of grace, who is our high priest, and you and I say... Forgive me this thing that haunts my memory. When we have been there before, Jesus says to you and me, human speak, what are you talking about? I don't know what sin you're talking about. Oh, you brought that sin to me long ago and repented. And I drowned it in the depths of the sea, don't you remember? I took it away from you as far as the east is from the west. I have blotted it out off of your record. I don't even remember it. You'll have to tell me about it. I have blotted it eternally. From my mind, that's the kind of a Christ. Then he says, if you think you're being punished for sin, you're not. That's my love. How could I punish you for a sin that I have obliterated from my mind eternally because I remember your sins no more? And when we can come to the throne of grace and have a Christ like that, then he says, don't you want the joy of starting to forgive yourselves? Or if we just start to forgive ourselves, when he has long ago forgiven us and obliterated even the memory of it from his mind. Oh, what joy there could be in enthusiasm in your life and mine if we lived in the light of the ascension. Our Christ, yes. He is seated at the right hand of God. David saw him. His Lord and his Son and Jesus quoted those words. He was talking about the Messiah. And because this Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he is seated there not only as our king, not only as our high priest, but also as our prophet. He came into the world, did he not? Became flesh to be a prophet, to be a teacher. And oh, what a teacher he was. He came into the world not only to teach us right and wrong. But you know, one day he said to the world, I am the light of the world. By that he meant this. Did you ever realize? He meant I'm the one that brings light into the world. If I didn't come, the world would never have light. 
the light of life. In other words, in me there is eternal life and without me there isn't. Everything is hopelessness, everything is lost, everything is darkness forever and ever. That's what he taught. He taught men that he was the light of the world. Then he went to heaven and he is still serving as our prophet. He went to heaven and he moved men to write down what he had said. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who have given us the memoirs of the life of Jesus that you and I know what he taught. He moved men not only to write the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we have Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and Philemon and Hebrews and James and 1st and 2nd Peter and 1st and 2nd 3rd John and Jude and Revelation. That's the written word and he is still protecting it as a teacher with the translations that are coming out. You know, it's tremendous. No age has ever seen the translations of the Word of God that our age has seen. Men attempting to make Christ speak 20th century English. No longer can anybody in the sound of my voice this morning ever say, I don't read the Scriptures because I can't understand them. Oh, yes, you can. If you can read and write, you can understand some of the new translations of the New Testament. They're right down your He is the prophet on the throne. And that prophet assures you and me that when we pray to him for a stronger faith in his word that he's coming again and that when he comes again that will be an end of every adversity and of everything that troubles us. All the men stood there of Galilee gazing into heaven and they were told he's coming back and in the word of God he says I'm coming back and when I come back all the adversities and the troubles that sometimes make life so miserable they're going to come to an end. That which is eternal shall be joy. And when we have that assurance, when we turn to him, the assurance in his word is coming back. This Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, it's not been a brush off. It's not been an abandonment. It's not a forsakenness. Oh, what a spiritual shot in the arm to live in the light of the ascension and when you and I can live in the light of it knowing again that we're the apple of his eye that you and I are his greatest concern as though he had no one else to care about except you as though he had no one else in the world to care about except me with that concern having us in his heart when you and I can realize that then if we're living in the light of the ascension we will want to share this Christ with those who feel abandoned with those who feel uh, left behind, with those who feel so forsaken. We said, so what's, what's wrong in this world? We seem to be uh, coming apart at the seams, especially on our college campuses. What's wrong? Men burning draft cards, rioting. Again, uh, uh, college students turning away from everything that you and I seemingly think is worthwhile. This unrest. What's wrong on the campus? Dr. Joyce Brothers, I think you have probably seen her on television, a noted psychologist made a study of college students, and it's rather revealing. She tells us this, the second largest cause of death among college students, can you imagine what it is? The first largest cause of death among college students is accidents. The greater number of college students that die, die by accident. 34% of college students that die, that's one in every three college students that die, 
Dr. Joyce Brothers tells us they die by taking their own life. Suicide. One out of three college students die by their own hand of those that die. Thirty-four percent. You know, we've been worshiping at the shrine of science, haven't we? We are learning that Christ is right, that man doesn't live by bread alone. Our college students without Jesus Christ may know a lot of things, but without Jesus Christ there comes that feeling of abandonment. That's what's wrong with them. That feeling of forsakenness. Why am I alive? Who wants to be alive for this kind of a world? It's time to get off. We are told that 90,000 college students every year threaten suicide. There will be 1,000 suicides amongst college students this year. One in ten of the 90,000 actually attempted and tried to carry it out. Man doesn't live by bread alone. If there's ever a need for Jesus Christ, parents, it's now. There lives in this seven-county area of Marion County, there lives a woman who one Sunday morning was alone in her kitchen. She pulled down the shades. She walked over to her gas stove, and she turned on the raw gas. It so happened by the providence of God that on that Sunday morning her radio was on, and it happened to be on for WMRN. And by the providence of God, Emmanuel Lutheran Church happened to be on. And the preacher at Emmanuel Lutheran Church that morning, by the providence of God, was talking about suicide and the feeling of abandonment and uselessness and that in Christ Jesus, Every man is precious and every man is useful. She had the radio on just to break up the loneliness and we happened into that kitchen that morning. Then sobbing and in weeping, she got up and decided that one or the other had to be turned off. And she walked over to the gas stove, thank God, and she turned off the gas stove because from the little radio there had come the message that all men in the sight of Jesus Christ are precious. There's no need for hopelessness, a sense of abandonment. She thanked me later that the word of God came in. Does it pay to share the ascended Lord, our King, our High Priest, our Prophet? Oh, when you think the world is down and you think there's no reason for living, why don't you come early to church some Sunday and just sit and look at these windows. They're, they're priceless. There aren't any finer stained glass windows in this part of the country, believe me. They're not excelled in any church in this community. If you can just sit down with your thoughts, and there he is, as king, concerned about you. No one will ever kidnap you against your will. The middle window, there he is as your great high priest, 
for sure he knew that when you call on him, he's just tickled to death to forgive you and to claim you as his own. And here he is as prophet, assuring you, hold on, son, I'm coming again. And when I come again, it's going to be the end of all suffering. Oh, no adversity is ever going to come in your life and mine, even though that boy may be tortured on Vietnam. No adversity, don't you ever believe otherwise, will ever come that will snatch your loved one away from Jesus Christ against his will. It just won't happen because there's a God-man on the throne, a man who's been through the mill, who's been through it all, who understands, who says, I've got you in my heart. Uh, can't we go out of church on the festival of the ascension and walk the glory road with joy and sing again to this Jesus, he leadeth me, oh blessed thought, Oh, words with heavenly comfort fraught, whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I will be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Yes, he does. And let's let him lead. Now let's go on enthusiastically because he is seated at the right hand of God in the place of honor. You are his greatest concern. And so am I. He has you and me in his heart. That's ascension. That's a Lord worth knowing. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keeping unites your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.